This fall, we have been doing a series which we've entitled Ecclesia, Rediscovering Spirit-Formed Community. Now, Ecclesia is simply the New Testament word that's used for church. And the church, we have said throughout the fall, we've been reminded the church is a community of spirit-formed followers of Jesus who are participating and working together to build the kingdom of God and fulfill Jesus' mandate, which is to make disciples. And so we believe that the church in Acts is an excellent model of what spirit-formed community looks like. And so over the course of this fall, we've been considering some of the characteristics of a spirit-formed community, a spirit-formed church that we see based in Acts. And so far, we've considered Christ-centered teaching. We've discovered or considered fellowship, prayer, and the breaking of bread. I attended Bible college to train for full-time ministry in the 80s. And I know that's a long time ago, but in my mind, it was just yesterday. And I remember in my first year being a naive first year, looking up to those in the higher classes. And I remember this one particular instance where some upperclassmen played a prank on one of the students. Pranks were a common part. It wasn't unusual to walk to the lobby in the morning and find a Mini Cooper sitting in the foyer or just different pranks, silly things that were done. But there was this one particular prank where, uh, you know, they focus on one of the students. And let's just say this student wasn't the sharpest knife in the drawer. You know what I'm saying? Not the brightest of bulbs. And so they, they focused in on prank on this particular student and they set up a speaker. And I think this had been done many times through the years at the Bible college. It's sort of a rite of passage, but they set up a speaker and a microphone hidden in his room. And And when he was asleep, they pretended to be the voice of God. And so they called his name repeatedly. And when he woke up, they pretended to be God and said, go to Africa. He legitimately thought that God had spoken to him, calling him to Africa, and didn't realize what had happened until last year. No, I'm kidding. Until partway through the next day. And so they had this prank going for a while until it all sort of came out in the end that it was just a prank. Today we're going to consider the Holy Spirit's work, not a prank, but the Holy Spirit's work in calling and sending individuals out from the Spirit-formed community to reach the world. And so today for a little while, uh, we're going to consider that in a spirit-formed community, the Holy Spirit sends out people to reach the world through the obedience of those within the community. And so our scripture, thank you, Jim, for reading Acts 11, 19 to 26, 13, 1 to 3, was read a little earlier in the service. If you want to follow along, by all means, do so. We're going to start with looking at scattering. In Acts chapter 6, we read that seven deacons were appointed by the apostles to coordinate the care and distribution of food 
for the widows and orphans. Now, we're not going to talk much about that today because that's a topic we're going to wrestle all on its own down the road. But they were put in place to coordinate the care and distribution of food for the widows and orphans within this newly formed church community. And even though there were seven, there are only two that are named specifically, or sorry, they're they're named, but only two do we get some detail about, and one of them is Stephen. And Stephen was one of these seven uh, appointed deacons to care for this particular ministry. That happened in Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 7, we read that Stephen was preaching, and in his sermon, he's saying that the religious leaders were responsible for Jesus' death and crucifixion. And of course, they are listening to his sermon, and they don't like what they're hearing, and they become angry for him, with him for preaching this content in his sermon. And so as Stephen was speaking, in the middle of the sermon, he had a vision and saw, we're told, the glory of God. Specifically, we are told that he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And so in the middle of his preaching, he has this vision, and then he takes a moment to share this vision, and he told the angry mob what he was seeing in his vision. You may have killed him, but he's saying specifically, I can see him in this vision, and he's standing, or he's at the right hand of God. Well, the religious leaders rejected Jesus as the Son of God and, in fact, had him killed on the basis of blasphemy because he was saying he was God when they were convinced that he wasn't. And so for Stephen to share this vision was considered blasphemy. And so they wanted to to respond to that, and they did by stoning Stephen to death. And the result of Stephen's martyrdom was that a great persecution then broke out against the church, we're told. And it was led by a young man named Saul, who we later come to know as the Apostle Paul. And so we're told that mobs went house to house, pulling people from their homes, taking them to prison. There was a fierce persecution, and the enemy desired to destroy the church, and it looked like it was being successful. Now, we're told as a result of this persecution, many were dispersed, leaving only the apostles to remain in Jerusalem. It's interesting, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus promised his followers that they would have power to witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But up until this moment in chapter 7 of Acts, they have remained in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 8, verse 1, because of Stephen's stoning, persecution broke out and they were scattered to other areas that they would not have gone to had the persecution and Stephen's death not happened. And it was at this point in the story that things got really uncomfortable for the apostles and the early church as they were being led to places and people that were outside of their comfort zone. Their beliefs, their theology, their practices were being pushed 
and challenged to the limits. Now, we're told that some of the believers from the Jerusalem church were Greeks. And what that means is they were Greeks who had somewhere along the way converted to Judaism. So now they're Greek Jews. And then when Jesus came along, they became followers of Jesus. And so when these Greek believers left Jerusalem in the midst of the persecution and the scattering, they went to places, they chose destinations that where their language and their cultural differences would be welcomed. And so here we are introduced to the city of Antioch. Antioch was the mother city of Syria and was located in what is southeastern Turkey today. It was what was known as a free city, and what that meant was they were given permission to rule themselves by the Romans. They belonged to the Roman Empire, but they had the freedom to rule themselves. It was the third largest city in the Greco-Roman world, next to Alexandria and Rome. Estimates are that it was about a city of about the size of 600,000 people. That was a large city in that day. Antioch was a multicultural city. There were Greeks, Syrians, Phoenicians, Jews, Arabs, Persians, Egyptians, and South Asians all living together in this one city. It was known for its moral laxity, and it was known for temple prostitution. It was a very religious city in that there were temples there to Zeus, Apollos, Poseidon, and Adonis. The city of Antioch, in this moment, becomes the second key city where a church is established, this new church is established, after Jerusalem. And Luke highlights this as he records the story of the mission of Jesus being carried out through the spirit-empowered lives of the followers of Jesus who were originally in Jerusalem. Secondly, success. As a result of the persecution, the Holy Spirit was leading the mission of Jesus from Jerusalem to Antioch and the Jews only, from the Jews only to now embracing Gentiles. The church, the spirit-formed community in Antioch lived a counter-cultural way of life in comparison to the other inhabitants of the city. They began to speak to other Greeks in the city and telling them the good news about Jesus. And we're told the result is they had great success. A great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Why are they able to have such great success in this city that was a city that was completely opposed to the values that these believers held dear? How could they be so successful? Well, Luke tells us why. He says the Lord's hand was with them. Now, the Lord's hand is a metaphor for the power of the Lord. And in Luke's writing, when he says the power of the Lord was present, he's referring to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the power of the Lord. And so the Holy Spirit working through these scattered Greek believers was bringing great success to the kingdom of God as they were reading, reaching Gentiles with the gospel, with the good news. Now, reports of the success 
and the growth of this spirit-formed community in Antioch reach back to the Jerusalem church. And there's some concern there about this Gentile expansion. So they decided to send a respected, trusted leader from the Jerusalem church named Barnabas to investigate and determine the validity, if any, of what was happening in Antioch. And so we're told that Barnabas arrived in Antioch and immediately observed evidence of the, quote, grace of God. And he, rege- and, and he rejoiced, it says, in, in what was happening there. He saw the grace of God and it made him really happy. In fact, he encouraged them, keep going, keep doing what you're doing. Stay true to the Lord with all of your hearts. Just just stay the course. Then we're told Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul slash Paul, found him, because in between 11 and 13, Saul has now had a conversion experience that God is now going to use him. And so Barnabas goes and gets Saul and found him and brought him back to Antioch with him. And we're told that they spent a year there teaching the believers. Sorry, not between 11 and 13, between the scattering and 13. I don't want to be off on my theology. I don't want to get in trouble. The commitment and testimony of Christ was so strong in Antioch that those in the city gave them the names Christians. It says it's the first time this term was used. It's the first time we see it in the New Testament to identify these Christ followers. Truth be told, this terminology was intended to be derogatory. They were actually mocking them. The practice of adding this suffix to the end of a name, I-A-N, to the end of Christ in this case, was a political practice in this culture. It identified people as being followers of a particular leader of a group. And so tomorrow there will be Trudeauians and Shirians and Mayans, not to be confused with Mayans, and there will be Singians and so on. If you identify with the leader of a political party, the IAN showed your allegiance to them. And so since Christ was the leader of these spirit-formed believers, they were called Christians. They were seen as political followers of an executed leader. Therefore, the mockery. While everybody else was being led by a living leader, they were viewed as being led by a dead leader. If you read New Testament, you'll notice that whenever the believers refer to themselves, they refer to themselves as saints or brothers or members of the way, or disciples. They didn't refer to themselves as Christians. They were named that by those in the city. Nevertheless, even though the term was meant to be derogatory, it actually elevated the reality of their commitment to Jesus. And because we know he is a living Savior, they experienced great success. Sending. The church in Antioch had extraordinary leadership. What we wouldn't give for that. 
Thank you for that amen. Really hurts, so I want you to know. There were prophets and teachers. And these prophets and teachers were spiritually mature. They were intellectually mature. They came from diverse geographic and cultural backgrounds. And so Luke wants us to see here, he wants to elevate and celebrate the diversity of cultures that are represented in the leadership of this spirit-formed community. Because if you have a church in a multicultural, diverse city, then it is, it's an amazing asset to have people who represent the demographic of your city. And he's celebrating that. The Holy Spirit had sent spirit-formed believers, spirit-formed believers to this foreign country, resulting in great success. But I want us to be reminded here that the Holy Spirit's intention in using this persecution for the advancement of the kingdom and the community of, of believers was well beyond the city of Antioch. It was about Antioch, but it was bigger than Antioch. The Holy Spirit's intention was the ends of the earth. And so what we witness next is the first major, successful, intentional effort of sending in the early church. And we should note that it is the Gentiles who are instrumental in this sending process. Probably not how the Jewish leaders back in Jerusalem would have seen it. The sending originated in the context of worship and fasting. In a moment of spiritual focus, the Holy Spirit spoke to the church and asked them to set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work that he had called them to do. How the Spirit spoke to them, we don't know. But what we do know is that the church, without hesitation, placed their hands on them and sent them off. Now, the practice of laying on of hands symbolized establishing a connection and was practiced in the early church in the forms of commissioning, sending people out, that even though we're sending you, we are connected to you. And it was also practiced when praying for those who needed healing. It symbolized togetherness, unity, single-mindedness, a focused faith on one goal. Now, it's important to note that it was the Holy Spirit that sent them, not the church. It shows us that clearly in the passage. The Holy Spirit calls and the church responds to the call in the practical act of sending. A devoted church is a, an obedient church, sending their best, giving their resources, releasing those whom the Holy Spirit desires to send without resistance. And so Paul and Barnabas were sent in obedience to the Holy Spirit's call. There are three insights from our text today that I'd 
like us to focus on and be reminded of. The first is history. EPC is affiliated with the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada. I'm assuming you all know that, but in case you didn't, you did learn something today. The North American Pentecostal tradition that we are a part of was born primarily out of revivals from Azusa Street in Los Angeles, California, and Chicago, Illinois in the early 1900s. Pentecostals identify themselves as a movement rooted in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit as evidenced in the book of Acts. Revivals, the Holy Spirit outpouring in the early days of Pentecost was seen by those who were a part of it as God bringing his church back to the New Testament reality that we see in Acts and with a renewed emphasis on spirit baptism and mission. Now, classical Pentecostals, whom we would identify with or as, have historically viewed baptism in the Holy Spirit as the power and means to accomplish the global mission of making disciples. And we base that on Acts 1.8. Jesus said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so in light of this, it's no surprise that the immediate response to the birth of the modern-day Pentecostal movement was an explosion of missions activity. Freshly filled with the Holy Spirit, individuals and families set out to new lands to preach what they refer to as the full gospel, viewing many other gospels as kind of not being quite a full glass, the full gospel to make disciples. They had little, if any, training, no ability to speak the foreign languages of the countries they were going to, little, if any, financial support, and no sending organizations. Some even packed their belongings in crates that would later serve as caskets because they had no intention of ever returning home. Both the Assemblies of God in the U.S. and the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada were officially founded as a response to this global evangelization, this mission's thrust. And the purpose of their creation was to create an agency or an organization or, as what we like to say, a fellowship to care for and support foreign missionaries and the work that they were doing. All of this to say, we are a part of a tradition here at EPC that has sending and global evangelization and global missions at its very core. It's in our DNA. Remove that from us as Pentecostals and we lose a part of our identity because global missions is an inseparable root in the core of who we are and what we believe God is calling us to be and to do. Secondly, sender. The Holy Spirit has always been instrumental in calling and equipping the people of God to accomplish God's plan of salvation. 
As followers of Jesus, God provides for all of us the empowering of the Holy Spirit to accomplish his desire that all would be saved, that none, none would be lost. And we are all participants in God's salvation agenda for the world. When we become followers of Jesus, we are a part of God's salvation agenda. And so in that sense, every single person who becomes a follower of Jesus is called to ministry. Now that being said, throughout history, the Holy Spirit has called certain individuals to set their lives aside to do specific vocational ministry beyond what is a part of being a follower of Jesus where we, you know, presently reside and live. Even today, the Holy Spirit is calling men and women to set aside their own ambitions and plans to serve God in full-time ministry. So today, there are global workers, we now call them. We used to call them missionaries. Now, they're global workers. We have, there are global workers all around the world who are serving God and serving people for the glory of Jesus. And these global workers have come to grips with and continue to wrestle with the issues of call, of guidance, and suffering as the Holy Spirit leads them and uses them to reach a lost world. And so we honor them in our communities of faith because we recognize that they have been set apart by the Holy Spirit to carry out the mission of God to the ends of the earth. And so we come alongside. We're a part of that. Now, I want to say we must be cautious of trends that we see in the church. Here's one of the benefits of getting old, is that you get to see the trends, and then sometimes they come back again, and everyone thinks they're new. And you know, you reach the point where you can say, sure, I saw that 20 years ago. Right? I mean, anyone else identify with that? Yeah. We have to be careful with trends in the church. I have seen times in my walk with God, and growing up in a church, and being in ministry, where congregations buy into the idea that pastors are the ones who are hired to do the ministry. And, and pastors are told all the time, well, that's why we're paying you. That's why we hired you to do the ministry. And so there's this idea that the pastor is there for, to do the ministry, and that has been a dysfunctional disservice to the church through the years because it violates Ephesians chapter 4 that tells us that the job of those in full-time vocational ministry is to equip the saints to do the ministry. I'm not making this up. Paul did. He's the one who said it. Now, on the flip side of this, there's a trend towards diminishing the significance of the fall call to full-time ministry. I mean, if we're all called to ministry, what's the big deal that some people get paid to do it? Well, I want us to know that neither of these attitudes is helpful. Yes, we are all called to minister, and we should take that seriously. Yet there are those whom the Holy Spirit 
calls and sends out into full-time vocational ministry. And this too we should take seriously. And work both together to build God's kingdom. It's not either or, it's both. You know, through the years as a youth pastor, I had opportunities to, to work with students and to see them, you know, come and express that they felt there was a call of God on their lives for ministry. Guess what? For most parents, that is the most, that's the conversation you want to avoid. Now, some, they think it's great, but I'm telling you, a lot of parents, they don't want to hear that conversation. Now, to be honest, if a young person comes to me, in some ways I almost try and talk them out of it just to test how serious they are and how committed to it and how much they know because it's the worst place to be if you're not supposed to be there. Now, that being said, I can't tell you how many times the parent's response has been this. Okay, God's calling you to ministry, but I want you to go to university and do this first so you have something to fall back on. I've heard that more than you want to know. And let me tell you something. When the Holy Spirit sets apart someone and calls them to full-time ministry and says, I am sending you into ministry, the best thing that we can do is not try to create a parachute and a backup plan. It's not our place. If God is calling people, God is calling people. He can take care of them. He's got the plan B. We don't have to create the plan B. Yes, we're cautious. Yes, we confirm it. Yes, we see it in the lives of people. But folks, it's the Holy Spirit that does the sending, not us. He does the calling and the sending, and then we come alongside to support. Thirdly, obedience. As we've seen in our scripture today, Paul and Barnabas responded to the Holy Spirit in terms of the call. But it's also important for us to see that the senders were equally important in what Paul and Barnabas accomplished for the kingdom of God. And there are three key examples of what the senders contributed to the ministry of global evangelization through the ministry of Paul and Barnabas. The first was prayer support. It was within the context of prayer and fasting that the call of global evangelization came in the first place. It was when they were praying. It wasn't when they were, you know, hanging around, having a chat, whatever. It was in the context of prayer and fasting. It was within the context of prayer that the team was gathered, prayed for, and sent out to minister. And prayer, as we read through the rest of the book of Acts, continued to uphold the team while they were away. Prayer. A second thing we see is financial support. The church didn't just pray for Paul and Barnabas and send the team out without providing financial support. We read many incidents of of offerings being collected to support their work. Believers in the early church saw the importance of praying, but also the importance of financial support. There were times that the team had to do some things themselves to earn money while they were doing the job. There's no question. But they needed to focus on the ministry they were called to do more than spending time on raising the funds to do it. And so the church raised the funds so they could focus 
on the call. Thirdly, we see what I might call celebration support. Paul and the team on each of his missionary journeys returned to their sending churches. And when they returned, they reported on all that God did through them while they were away. And as people heard the stories of what God had done, of lives that were changed, of how the Spirit led and guided and worked in and through these people, they celebrated with great joy. They were not there personally. They didn't get to go. They didn't get to do it. But their prayers and their finances and their encouragement were significant contributions to people coming to Jesus. These three areas form the basis of the work of the missions committee in assisting EPC in our global missions response. Prayer, finances, celebration. In 2019, we've been prayerfully, financially supporting and celebrating global ministry in various countries in Africa, Russia, Central Asia, Pakistan, Cuba, even sending, a sh- even sending a short-term team in March. Our financial goal for 2019 to support these ministries is about $40,000. And I want you to know that each year we make a financial commitment to our missionaries. We give them what we promise to give. If we promise it, we're going to give it. You've heard me say that before, but I want to remind you of it. If we say we're giving you this much and we don't raise it, we give it to you anyway because we promised it to you. And even if it means going in the red, and there have been years that we have had a deficit in our overall finances because we are faithful to keep the commitment we've made to our global workers. Because at EPC, we take our role as supporters very, very seriously. So in conclusion this morning, and I'm going to invite the worship team to come back. In a spirit-formed community, it is the Holy Spirit that sends out people to reach the world. And he does it through the obedience and support of those who are part of the spirit-formed community. And at EPC, we take this responsibility very seriously. And will I pray always continue to by praying for our global workers, sending financial support to help our global workers be there and do the work that they're called to do, and then report back and celebrate as a congregation when we hear the reports of what God by his spirit is doing through the lives of those that he has called so that we can be inspired to continue to do what the spirit is calling us to do. Would you stand with me this morning? What a coincidence that we have our missions lunch today. We're going to take a few moments before we conclude our service to provide opportunity to pray for one another this morning within this spirit form community. And some of you may be here this morning and 
I generally prayed for you earlier. Maybe your hearts are heavy. Maybe there's issues or challenges, decisions you have to make, obstacles you're trying to overcome, something God's doing in your life and things he's teaching you and how you're growing and being stretched. And you just need someone to pray with you this morning. I'm going to invite our prayer team to come and join me here at the front. And if you're here this morning and you would like someone to pray with you, to lay hands on you and to connect and and to believe together in, in unity and focus our faith, asking God to do what honors him and what what helps us. Then as our worship team leads us this morning, I encourage you to step out of your seat and, and come to one of us and we'd be honored to pray with you this morning.